here's our plan. I'm going to back up and answer a couple of questions about our first session that folks have asked me since then. Um, make a couple more comments about that. We're going to press on and look at church revitalization necessities. And then uh, I'll leave a few minutes for some Q&A as well. So let's, uh, let's begin with a, with a word of prayer. Father, we, we thank you again, God, for the privilege of being your children. Your men and women called of you to help lead your church and churches to know you better, to serve you better, to uh, proclaim your name to the nations. So help us in this hour, Father, to uh, stay focused, give us uh, discipline and recall uh, in the afternoon hours, God, may uh, we be challenged by what we hear. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, before we uh, took our break earlier, uh, someone asked about how do, you, how do you use Disciple Dave in a local church? And, and part, of, part of the question that came up was, does the, does the church member understand that you are striving for the church member to be Disciple Dave? And my answer to that is yes. Uh, in fact, I, I encourage you to use that image in your membership class, that is to, to say to potential new, new members, here's what we want you to become. We, we want you to know this is what we want you to be, and this is how we hope to get you there. You, you do a couple of things when you do that. One, you, you raise the bar. You raise the significance of what it means to be a member of your church. And two, you are in essence saying to somebody, if your plan is to come here and just sit, this isn't the place for you. Because, because we intend to help you get invested and get involved. And so up front, you are letting that be known. It does mean then that you have to help members think about where they are in this journey. And ideally, you help them keep their own record. What am I learning? What am I doing? What do I still need to work on? Uh, it, it takes some real effort. But if our job is to make disciples, then we've got to put forth the effort to do it. It's, it's, it's not sufficient to say it's, it's so much work that I don't know how we can even get started. Start with one person and do something with that. A, a second thought, we went through uh, my model of a healthy church. I think when Dr. Rayner meets with you later on uh, this evening, I think he will probably talk some about our church health report that helps churches evaluate where they are according to their own perception. That church health report evaluates those six pillars on my model, the, those six areas. What does a church believe about themselves? And it asks 10 questions that are basic theological questions, too. And so as we put that, that uh, project together years ago, in the back of our mind was that sense of those six purposes of the church and the, and the theological foundation. Um, the model that you saw... Uh, for those who are interested, if you want to see that unpack some more, that's, that's in my book called Discipled Warriors, which is now uh, somewhat dated, uh, but it at least will let you see that model a little more uh, closely. Okay, let's talk about church revitalization necessities, some things that, that I would contend we, we have to see if our churches are going to move into revitalization. Some of these may surprise you, some of them may not. The first one should not because we spent most of our time on this in our first session. There has to be a vision of church health. 
we, we must be at a place where we can say this is what we believe the New Testament church looks like. This is what we believe a disciple of Jesus looks like, and this is what we're aiming for. I'll say it one more time. If you can't identify that, you're aiming for nothing, which means you're likely going to get very little. So working through that process, and, and it doesn't take forever to work through that process because we're not talking about uh, something that varies in every location. We're talking about basics. What does it mean to be a healthy church, and what does it mean to be a healthy disciple? Those, those are going to be similar wherever we are. It's just a matter of looking at the word and putting it together in such a way that you can get it to your, to your church folks. So there's number one. Number two, we need revitalized leaders. And I'm going to take you to the scripture to show you that. I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Mark. I want to walk you through some passages in Mark's gospel to get us to think about this a little bit. Mark chapter 1. Mark's gospel is a, is a fast-moving gospel. By chapter 3, we're a year and a half into Jesus' ministry. Uh, the word immediately is used 40 plus times in the book. It's almost like as you read the gospel of Mark, you're supposed to run out of breath. As you, as you read it. It just moves like that. And so I want us to see not only how quickly it moves, but how the people at times respond to Jesus. And I'm picking up in chapter 1, verse 21. The chapter begins with the calling of John the Baptist and calling of the, the first disciples from the sea. And then in verse 21 we read, Then they went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because unlike the scribes, he was teaching them as one having authority. Now, what I want you to see there is the word astonished because that word and similar words recur in this book that Jesus shows up and Jesus teaches like no one else has taught. Jesus works miracles like they haven't seen. The people are astonished. Now, let's, let's keep reading. They're astonished at his teaching. He's teaching like nobody else's. He's, he's not relying on anybody else's authority. It's his authority. Then, verse 23, Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So even the demons recognized who he was. In fact, they recognize it better than the religious leaders do. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him, shouted with a loud voice and came out of him. Then verse 27, then they were all what? They're all amazed. So they began to argue with one another saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Now watch verse 28. News about him then spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. The pattern I want you to see, it doesn't always happen this way, but it often does. Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus works miracles. Jesus teaches like no one else has ever taught. The people are astonished. The people are amazed. And what do they do with that according to verse 28? They go talk about him. It's just the way it works that when Jesus rocks your world, you talk about him. 
Now, it doesn't always happen that way. There are some instances by chapter 3, Jesus is working miracles and the, the, the religious leaders unite together and, and set out to kill him. So at times there's opposition. Sometimes he works a miracle and they say he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. But, but I want you to see this underlying pattern of when you're astonished by Jesus, you tell others about him. In fact, the end of... Chapter 1, you may remember the story. Uh, Jesus cleanses a man with a skin disease. And Jesus tells him, uh, go to the priest and let him declare you clean. Don't tell anyone else along the way. Just go do this and pack, pick up with me in verse 43. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses prescribed for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. But he was out in deserted places and they would come to him from everywhere. So Jesus told this man, don't go tell anybody. And what does he do? He tells everybody anyway. Because when Jesus touches it, it's just here. And when Jesus touches you, changes you, it's right here on your lips, and you want to talk about it. Chapter 2, we see the same pattern. Remember the, the paralytic? His friends bring him to Jesus. They can't get to Jesus because of the crowd in the house, and so they go up to the roof and take the roof off and lower their friend. Jesus there forgives his sin and heals him. He tells him to pick up his mat and go, and look with me at verse 12 of chapter 2. Immediately, he got up, picked up the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all what? Astounded. And gave glory to God, saying, we, never, we have never seen anything like this. They're astounded, and they give glory to God. All right? Let's press on. Go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 35. This is Jesus in the boat. Remember, he calls them to cross to the other side. Verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he told them, let's cross over to the other side of the sea. So they left the crowd and took him along since he was already in the boat, and other boats were with him. A fierce windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking over the boat. So the boat was already being swamped, but he was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. Why is he sleeping? He's sleeping because he's what? He's tired. Why else is he sleeping? Because he's the son of God. He's not worried. You don't worry about the wind when you move it. You don't worry about the ways when you created them. You sleep. So they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Then he said to them, Why are you fearful? Do you still have no faith? We can only wonder how often Jesus would ask that question of us. In verse 41, And they were terrified and asked one another, Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They're still trying to figure him out. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? 
I want us to think about the last time we were so amazed by Jesus that all we could say is, who then is this? Do you remember when Jesus first touched you and forgave you and all you could say is, who is this? Do you remember when he answered a prayer that, that just, just wounded your heart and he came through in some spectacular way and all you could say is, who then is this? Or he saved your loved one that you, that you weren't even sure God could change. And he did. And all you can say is, who then is this? Then we go to chapter 5. Chapter 5, we see Jesus not only as the master over nature as he is in the latter part of chapter 4. We'll see him as the master over sickness, the master over demons, the master over death. In particular, remember there is a man who is demon-possessed. He has a multitude of demons, and Jesus casts the demons out of him. Pick up in verse 18 of chapter 5. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed kept begging him to be with him. But he would not let him. Instead, he told him, go back home to your own people and report to them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he sends him back into Gentile territory, and he says, look, you might want to hang out with me, but that's not the plan. Huh? You, you go back and you tell what, what I've done. Verse 20, so he went out and began to proclaim to the capitalists how much Jesus had done for him, and they were all what? Amazed. It's just the way it works. And then... Jesus brings healing to the woman with the blood disease. He raises the daughter of Jairus from the dead. Pick up with me in verse 41, the end of the chapter. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were utterly what? astounded or astonished your version may read they're utterly astounded then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat and in Jewish territory to this point he's saying to them don't go tell them yet because they misunderstand what kind of Messiah he will be but guess what they did according to Matthew they went and they told everybody how do you not when your daughter who has been dead is now alive? You talk about it. Remember when you were so amazed by Jesus you couldn't help but talk about him? When the thought of we need an evangelism class to get people to do evangelism would be foreign to you? Because it just you just did it? Because you were amazed? All right, go to chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. There's the word again. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Now look, look where they start. They start with astonishment. Where does he get this authority and this power? And Where did he get these things? Then watch what they do in verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Now watch what they do. They start with astonishment. 
and then they begin to think about it. But he's just one of us. We know his brothers. We know his sisters. We know his mother. He's just the carpenter. And they move from astonishment to reduce him to he's just one of us. And Jesus says in verse 4, And then Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do any miracles there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, look at this next verse, chapter 6, verse 6. And he was amazed at their unbelief. So to this point, who in this book had been the ones who were astonished or amazed? It's the people. Who is it who's amazed now? It's Jesus. And why is he amazed? Yeah, you know why he's amazed? Because they're not amazed. They were. They were astonished. Now he's amazed by their unbelief. He's amazed that they're no longer astonished. Here's, here's my point. I fear they were asking leaders to be instruments of revitalization when they themselves have lost their wonder over Jesus. And that's not going to go very far. Because the work of revitalization is not easy. And if we have to muster up our excitement over Jesus, the headaches of revitalization will drain us. And so for all of you who are working with pastors, you're giving them tools and strategies and ideas for leading a church to revitalization. At the end of the day, I think we've got to go back and look at our heart. It's our fire for Jesus that will keep us moving. So we need revitalized leaders. Here's number three. We need proactive praying. Proactive praying. Any of you who know me as I speak about prayer, you know this is a big issue for me. Let me show you this in the scriptures again. Go with me to Luke chapter, let's go to chapter 5. I'll take you just a couple places. Luke 5, verses 15 and 16. Do you ever come across scripture texts that are so convicting that you kind of wish they weren't there? This, this is one of those texts for me. So let's look at what we read here. Verse 15 and 16 of chapter 5. But the news about him spread even more. And large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and what? Prayed. Well, let, me, let me tell you why this is striking to me and why we have to think about this. Imagine the scene. The text speaks to us of great crowds coming together to hear him. He is the gospel. He has the message of life. And so he's come to proclaim this, to live this out. And the crowds gather to hear him. So they're out there. They bring their sick to him and place them at his feet. And so I can just see this picture of, just think with me about it, in front of him. The, the man with a withered hand, he, he cannot use his limb. The man over here who had to be carried here because he's lame, and somebody brought him here and left him here. 
this the blind man who had to stumble his way through the crowd to get close to Jesus or or I imagine that if, if there are a bunch of sick people here there are probably some people in pain so I suspect I hear moaning if there's a lot of sickness I I suspect there's odor probably so I hear the moans I smell the smells I see the sickness and here's Jesus who has the power to touch them all. And yet the text says that he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. The reason, the reason this verse, these verses so convict me is I so love to preach the word. And I, I so love shepherding. And if I had opportunity to preach to the crowds, and if I had a power to heal the sick, and they're lying in front of me, I fear I would minister first and pray if there's leftover time. And it's not what Jesus does. Jesus pushes away to pray. And I think that's foreign to many of us. Because what we know is we're doers. And we think about revitalization. We think about what are we going to do to get there when in fact sometimes this has to start with us pushing away from everything and getting back on our knees. And that's hard. It's hard to do because nobody knows we do it. It, it seldom produces immediate results. It's hard to explain to people, sorry, I was in my prayer closet. That sounds strange to people. And yet Jesus did exactly that. He pushed away and prayed. Now go to chapter 9. Let me show you another example of this. Verse 28. It's the story of the transfiguration. You know all the events that take place there, but Luke gives us the reason for going to the mountain. Verse 28 says, About eight days after these words, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to do what? To pray. Luke tells us he took them there to pray. They would see the, the glory of God fall and Moses and Elijah speaking and Peter would say it's good for us to be here. Let's build some stuff. Uh, but here's what Jesus did. He took some of his leaders and said let's go pray. If we're trying to revitalize churches without taking our leaders aside and say, let's go pray, we're doing it in our own power. And you know what? Here's the danger. There's nothing to say that we can't increase the numbers in our own power and call it a revitalization. It just won't likely be a congregation that threatens the enemy. So proactive praying means I pray first. I don't pray until after. But here's my concern. We've taught people to pray only reactively. Let me, let me unpack that for just a minute. How many of you are in a church, you've been in a church, you know a church that has a, that has a prayer list? Let me see your hands. All right, all right. All right, help me then. What has to happen to get your name on the prayer list? Get sick? Die, accident, lose a job. Something has to happen to you, right? And so then we'll start cranking up the prayers for you. 
How about, how about families in our churches? When do we really start praying for our families? When they're in crisis. And sometimes we don't even learn about it until the crisis has ended in separation. Young people, when do we start praying for young people? When they're wandering in sin. We're representing, I think Chris said, 13 states, all kinds of associations, leaders, pastors, all kinds of churches represented here. When do we really start praying for sister congregations? When we hear they're in trouble. So here's what we've done. We tell people to pray and not teach them. I already mentioned that earlier. And then the model we've given them is when the family is in crisis, you pray. When young people are in crisis, you pray. When churches are in crisis, you pray. When there's a problem, you pray. We put you on the prayer list when there's a problem. All of those times are the right times to pray. But if we're not careful, if we only start praying after the enemy is already winning, we're letting the enemy set the agenda for our prayer list. And that's backwards. We don't respond to the battle. We prepare for the battle. In fact, Jesus even taught us to pray that way. And in temptation, how should we pray about temptation? According to Jesus, we pray, Father, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. So what did Jesus tell us? When do we pray about temptation? Before we ever get into it. When do most of us pray about temptation? It's after. So our, our prayers sound like this, God, forgive me again. Just maybe we would have to pray that. We would get to pray that less often if we prayed the way Jesus told us to pray. Pray before. God, deliver me from the evil one. So if we want to see churches change, new life brought to churches. I think that means proactive praying. We don't do first and ask God to bless. We ask God's wisdom first. Proactive praying. Number four. Somebody has to have eyes of faith. Eyes of faith, meaning from Hebrews 11, we can see the things that you cannot see. The evidence of things unseen. Somebody in the room has to believe that God can do something through this congregation. And even if it's only one person, God can do something through one person. But if everybody is given up, even though you're going through the motions of seeking revitalization, it won't go anywhere. Primarily the leaders, we have to still believe God can do something. Remember I said before our, our break, when I was with you earlier, watch for the glimpses, watch for the things, the little things that God is doing. And let those glimpses say, all right, God's still up to something here. And sometimes you have to look harder than other times, but still we need to see in our heart that God can do something through this congregation. Just a mustard seed. Somebody has to believe. And sometimes for those of you who are working with pastors, um, mission strategists, Sometimes your job is to help those pastors find hope again and help them to see what they cannot see. Sometimes you have to go in and say, you know what, as I look at this, I see this positive. I see this positive. 
I see this positive. And I want, you to, I want you to see that again. Because when we get stuck in the battle, we tend to only see the circumstances. And we need outside eyes to help us see a little differently. Somebody has to have eyes of faith. Number five. Revitalization means we have to have a peace with incremental changes. Go back with me. Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's pick up in verse 17. Here's what we read. If you say to yourself, these nations are greater than I, how can I drive them out? Do not be afraid of them. Be sure to remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. The great trials that you saw, the signs and wonders, the strong hand and outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. The Lord your God will do the same to all the peoples you fear. The Lord your God will also send the hornet against them until all the survivors and those hiding from you will perish. Don't be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, a great and awesome God, is among you. That's good news, yes? All right, then verse 22. The Lord your God will drive out these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to destroy them all at once. Otherwise, the wild animals will become too numerous for you. So at least there's one situation where God said, I'm, I'm going to do this in my timing because I know what's best for you. So we have to be okay with if the Lord revitalizes our churches little by little by little, that's okay. So talk to me for a minute. Why, why do we wrestle with little by little, incremental changes, slow change? God could do it however he wishes. And there are stories of God just falling on places and, and churches are changed fairly quickly. But that's not often the case. Why do we struggle with incremental change? What do you think? Or why do others struggle, maybe? Okay. Yeah, we live in a microwave world where you, you put your hot dog in the microwave and turn around and it's done. And, and we almost live as if God ought to be answering our prayers before we ever ask them. Uh, we want things done that rapidly. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we we latch on to the immediately's and forget that God's calendar isn't always our calendar. God's clock isn't always our clock. Other reasons why we wrestle? Okay, 
Okay, yeah, I think sometimes we, because, remember I said to you, we want to we wanna know what we're aiming for in order to lead a church toward health and revitalization. Sometimes our model is not necessarily, let's look at the scriptures, it is this other church down the street. And it's always immediately in front of us, and we want an answer from God right now. So somebody, yes? We do. Yeah, yeah. And somebody? Yeah, yeah. Our egos are so often tied to everything that we do, and our ego gets in the way. Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. One, one thing, one thing. Yeah, I, I, think, I think we struggle with this for all the reasons that you've noted. I, I think we also struggle with this. In some ways, we want answers immediately. We've read books that say, do this, and this is what should happen. And in some cases, we don't ask for help until we're desperate. And when you get desperate, you really do want answers right away. And I get that. We need to learn how to ask for help before we get to desperation. Because we do this better together than we do it by ourselves. Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. Yes, we, we forget that by the time we're in decline on the wrong side of the bell curve, it's often taken us a while to get there. And sometimes the slide down has been almost imperceptible. You, it, it almost feels like you wake up and figure out you're in trouble. And then you think, no, we've got to fix this now. And we want to change overnight what took 10 years to, to be in decline. So we just don't think logically about it sometimes. My point is this. We've got to be okay with, not only be okay with, but rejoice with the incremental changes. Thank God for those things. Number six, we need a small group of committed followers. And maybe the better word there is, is other leaders. My, my point is this. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up the mountain to the garden. If we want our churches to be revitalized, we don't have to reach everybody. We don't have to have everybody on board. In fact, I'm not convinced we'll ever get everybody on board. It seems to me, Jesus had 12 disciples. One of those was a fake all the way through. So if we can keep our ratio at 1 to 12, uh, we'll be doing what Jesus did. So if Jesus didn't get everybody on board, we're not going to either. You change churches by changing lives, by one or two or three persons who get on board and say, Pastor, I'm with you. 
And it might be as we work with pastors that we help them find those two or three others that will walk beside them. Because they're often there. It might be that pastors are so defeated they can't see them anymore. It might be that there are brothers and sisters around them who desperately want to help, and the pastor has grown so hardened to everything he won't let anybody in. And our job is to shepherd his heart a little bit. I told you about the first church I pastored, the, the 19 people, and I, I look back to those folks and why they didn't fire me several times. I don't know. I, I pray that God has burned every cassette tape that had a, one of my recorded sermons on it from back then because I have no idea what I was preaching then. But you know what? Those people loved me. My PhD dissertation I dedicated to my wife and to one of the deacons at that church who was not educated at all. I promise you, he made up theological words. He just made up things uh, to try to have discussions. And I didn't know any better at the time. I was 20 years old when I started. He just loved me. He picked me up when I struggled. He put his arm around me when I cried. And I could press on because he was with me. We need to pray that every pastor not only has those, but he knows them and goes after them. I promise you, give me two or three people who will walk beside me and I can put up with a lot of garbage. If I feel like I'm alone, everything feels like garbage. So we need this small group of committed followers. Number seven, we need up-to-date knowledge of the community. When I do church consultations, we get a demographic study of the community. But I don't usually just give it to the leaders. I will, I will get that demographic study, review it on my own, and then ask questions of the leaders. What percentage of your ministry area is under age 40? What percentage of your area would be African-American, Asian. What's the fastest growing group in your community? And you know what I learn, right? You can guess what I often learn. They don't know their community. So their assumption is that their church represents their community. And so they can look at the people in their pews and figure out who's in the community, and that's often not at all the case. So sometimes in church revitalization, one of the first things we have to do is get in the car and go look at the community with the eyes of God. Sometimes it means walking the streets. I, I say to our young students, when the Lord sends you to a place, I want you to go wherever you go. I want you to go as if you're going after an unreached people group. So if we send you overseas, we want you to do some things. We want you to learn the language. We want you to learn the culture. We want you to know the history. We want you to know how relationships function in that culture. We want you to know the religious worldview. You, you go overseas, and you're going to learn all that, and you know you need to. If we send you down the street, 
for some reason, we don't think we need to do that anymore. So I think we're missiologically off target. We're trying to reach communities we don't even know. I, I do not have that percentage overall, but, but you, I understand your question. In so many cases, people have moved out from where their building is, and we're asking them to be burdened about people around them who aren't around them. And it's, it's increasingly difficult to do that. All right, you get my point. You got you to gotta know your community. So those of you who are working with pastors, I encourage you to do the same. Get, get them demographic information. Help them to think it through. Find out where they are. Drive around with them. Walk around with them. See, see the community. Listen to the people. Even, even generationally, even in our churches, we have to learn how to hear each other. Because we don't even talk the same language in our church. I was, I was with a, a church planter in Las Vegas a few years ago. And the first thing he said is he didn't like my shoes. My shoes weren't very cool. So he took me to a shoe store so I would buy some shoes, which, which I did. My wife was so excited because I never buy shoes. But she knew if a student wanted me to do it, I was, I was pretty much going to do it. So, so now I have cooler shoes than I had. We, uh, but then we went, to, uh, we went to eat for dinner. We went to P.F. Chang's. I remember it distinctly. I remember the foods in front of us. You can, you know, you can smell it, as, but you haven't prayed yet. And so we're sitting there. He's over here to my left. My wife is on my right. And he looks at me and says, hey, Doc, you got one in you? Can you lift one up? <laughs> I had no idea. I looked at my wife. She said, I don't know what if. He looked at me. He said, I mean, can you say grace? I said, all right, dude, that I get. Because his language isn't my language. I was working with some DMIN students earlier this, this summer, and they're asking some questions and using words. I have no idea what they are. They, they were asking about, uh, do you, I walked in the room, and they said, do you want to hear a dad joke? I said, I guess. If you, if you feel like you can tell it, let's, uh, tell it to me. Well, they tell me this joke, and it has nothing to do with dad. I'm completely confused. I didn't even think it was funny, and then it had nothing to do with I said, that has nothing to do with a dad. I said, no, Doc. A dad joke means it's something your dad would laugh at, or something like that. And I said, well, I said, you've you got to help me here. Uh, and so they actually referred me to a website that once a week sends me words that people use now. And you know what? I need that. Oh, is there really? I don't want it, but thanks for letting me know that. <laughs> so so here's, here's my point. We don't even know the generations in our own buildings. And then we don't know the people outside our buildings, and we're trying to revitalize churches that we don't even know, reaching communities that we don't even know. Number eight. I hesitated not to include this one, but I think I have to. What do I, what do I see in church revitalization necessities? Strong and improving communication skills.
here's, here's my point, and I'm just going to be frank with you here. I have never seen a genuine revitalization led by a boring, disorganized preacher. I don't know how else to say that. I'm just reporting what I've seen. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. All of us, none of us is as good as we think we are in our preaching, and all of us have room for improvement. One of the things I'm doing now with, with Dr. Rainer, with Church Answers, is uh, part of my role working with them is I'm evaluating sermons. Guys send me their sermons, I evaluate, I call them up, say, let's talk this through. Let's talk about how you might strengthen this. Because we all need to keep striving to be better. And if we want to lead a church that brings, that has new life, we better be on our knees seeking God, working hard at communicating well, and asking the question, how can I do this better? And most of us need help answering that question. True? We need our hearers to talk to us. We need honest people to talk to us. Strong and improving communication skills. Number nine, another necessity, a genuine love for the church. Let me, let me show you this scripturally. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians one. I want you to pick up with me in verse four as Paul begins this letter to the Corinthians. He speaks really in glowing terms with them in verse four. I always thank my God for you, because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus that by him you were enriched in everything, in all speech and knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at that. He says, I thank God always for you. You've been enriched in everything. The testimony of Christ is confirmed among you. You don't lack any spiritual gifts. You're eagerly awaiting the the revelation of the Lord, these, these are good words. And they go to the end of the book, chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 23 and 24. Paul concludes this letter with his most intimate closing of any of his letters. Verse 23, he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. My love be with all of you. So the book starts with, I thank God for you. It ends with, all of my love with you. And then think about what's in between. I've said this in our chapel, that if you want an outline of 1 Corinthians, here it is. I thank God for you. I love you. Y'all are an absolute mess. <laughs> That's the book of 1 Corinthians. But here's what Paul shows us. 
If you've got to speak hard word to a church, you've got to call a church to repentance, you've got to help deal with division, you've got to help revitalize something that's struggling, you better thank God for them and you better love them. And if you can't do that anymore, you will roll over the people God has called you to lead. And then you'll declare them all unregenerate. And some of them may well be. But sometimes the problem isn't our people, it's that we lead dumbly. And we lead without love. We've got to love the people who drive us crazy. And for most of us, God has to do something in our heart to get us there. So we don't lean there. I thank God for you. I love you. But we got to work on the mess. And then number 10. 10th necessity, a long-term commitment. you got to be invested. And you got to do this with patience. Some, some years ago, I was directing the DMIM program at Southern, and I, I had a, a man call and ask about entering into the program. He was 71 when he called. He said, do you accept a 71-year-old in your DMIN program? And I told him yes, as long as he paid all of his tuition up front, uh, <laughs> ju just in case. <laughs> and thank God he thought that was funny. Um, well, he came in our program. And I will never forget a day when I'm sitting in a room. This is a church consultation track like we have here now, our church revitalization track. And, and we're sitting in a room, and there are a number of young leaders there. And he sits back in his chair, and he said, Gentlemen, one of the problems I see is that too many pastors are pastoring three churches. They're pastoring the church that they never got over either because it wounded them or because they wish they were back there. They're pastoring the church where they are, and they're already pastoring the church where they want to be. He said, you can't pastor one church when you're pastoring three. And I just sat back and let him teach. I said, I needed to hear that. For church revitalization to take place, we have to put our feet in the soil and stay there. Not worry about where we want to be. We thank God for where we are. And we make a long-term commitment to trust that God is up to something. Okay, got it? Got all ten? All right. Then let me take some time now, and let's, let's have some Q&A. Chris mentioned uh, prior to my starting that, that someone had asked about a general question about the seminary. What are we doing to help bivocational pastors to get, to get further training? I, I, I will tell you that there, there is greater access to theological education today than there's ever been in my 24 years of teaching, uh, largely through online and hybrid classes. Uh, online, entirely online, or hybrid classes that are partially online that you come to our campus for one weekend a semester. And from Friday and Saturday, you get 16 hours of the semester with us as professors. And so it really is a, it's a good combination that you get to stay in your ministry setting, you get to come 
here then and still have interaction with peers and with professors, but you don't move here to, to, to get your education. Uh, there are ways now to get that kind of training that uh, are just really good, I think. I, be I believe in what we're doing in online education. I believe in how we do it, uh, and not everybody, not all professors like online stuff, but when you put forth the effort to make it work, it does work. And it's a good way to learn. And I, I think there are some, some folks for whom it is best to move to a campus. It just is. There are others who are in good ministry settings. They're under the, under the mentoring of a good, another good leader. I don't know that it's always wise to bring them to a campus where we cocoon them when they're already in a good, in a good ministry. It's our job to help figure out how to help them. And so via online, via hybrid, and now our creditors have opened the door that if there's someone in the area who can oversee classes, you can earn up to 21 hours in a local church through our equip system. So you can get a lot of credit now uh, with, with a pastor shepherding the way that we couldn't do years ago. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Thank you. Thank you. Now that I understand the question better, a, a couple of things. First of all, our college, we're we're broadening as much as we can to say how do we how do we equip people to do things beyond just theology. Uh, so that we have partnerships now where you can where you can get a teaching degree uh, through us and another institution. Uh, we have a business minor, some things that we're trying to do to say, all right, we want to help equip you. We can't do everything that Wake Tech can do and UNC can do and so forth, but we can we can do some things to help get you there. Furthermore, uh, as as I teach, when I teach pastoral ministry, I challenge our students to think about that there is a genuine calling to be bivocational. And I, and I do believe that. I believe that uh, there are some of us that God says, I want you to be a bivocational pastor. I, I wrote about this in my blog a few years ago, and I'll be honest with you, I got hammered about it. People commented and said, the only reason a person should ever be bivocational is because the church is too cheap to pay him full time. Uh, and sometimes that is a problem. But we need to help our students, and we, we push this to say, I want you to think about God might put you in a place where your job is to do something else while you're pastoring, and is it going to be complicated? Is it going to be hard? Absolutely it is. But you'll be forced to delegate. You'll be forced to equip people. You will stay connected with lost people better than some of us do who are doing this full time. And there are all kinds of benefits of being bivocational. What we have to help our students know is that it's okay to come here and spend a long time earning a master's degree and still do something else full-time. That's what we have to deal with, is why would I come and do this and then not be full-time in ministry? Well, what we teach them is, uh, you're still full-time doing the work of the Lord. You're just not dependent on your church for your income. What else? Other, other questions? It's a, it's a great question. The uh, question is, in all my travels, 
Well, so the one thing I'm hearing about associations that you all may need to know. You asked the question, so I assume you want honesty here. For our young students, they don't even know you exist because they come from churches that don't know you exist. So part of our task is to help them see that you do exist. What I would say to you is don't get frustrated if they don't get invested in what you're doing if no one's ever challenged them to do that. No one's ever taken them by the hand to say, let's do that. So that's one issue. Here's, here's a second issue. Sometimes, again, you asked me, so I'm, I'm thinking in the back of my head, how honest do I really want to be here? So, sometimes, I say this out of love, because you've heard me say, I, I believe we can do this better together at every level. But sometimes students do get, they try to get invested, and they go to meetings that are just horrible. They're old, they're slow, they're out of date. There's nobody around them that's even close to their age. And they wonder why they should, why they should do that. And somebody's going to have to take them by the arm and say, you know what, this, the crowd here tonight probably is going to be older than you. I'm just, generally. Um, and we may not be all that you would want us to be now. Because if you want to know a generation that expects everything fixed now, it's, it's a young generation. Somebody may have to say, but we need you on board to help us do this better. They're not going to think that way. Somebody's going to have to convince them to do that, and you are the ones to do it. I think back to my first, I forget what we called them back then. I don't think it was DOM. I think it was Associational Missionary. I think. He was on my doorstep of the church when I first started pastoring. And I didn't always agree with him, but he, he welcomed me. He sat down with me. One of the things I'm really grateful for now, I'm 58 years old. When I was 20 years old, he went to my church and said, you need to give this percentage of his salary to the annuity board back then. And he said to me, every church you go to, you need to talk to them about making sure they're contributing to your retirement. Now as a 58-year-old, I'm really glad he told me to do that at 20. And I would, I would have not known that. He helped me work with taxes. He helped me do things that nobody else helped me to do. In some cases, you can intersect with the lives of our young leaders, helping them think those things through. Some of them don't know how to budget. They've not thought about, they don't even understand pastoral taxes. Uh, retirement for them is so far out there, they think about nothing with investment. Uh, they're not sure why they should go to the SBC. Uh, and you're not going to reach them by announcements. You're not going to reach them by emails. You're going to reach them by chasing them down and saying, can we have lunch? This is a generation that welcomes being pursued because they long for older people to walk with them. But they're not likely to go after it. They if someone comes and spends time with them, though, I promise you, you'll find some, some young leaders that will welcome the time. One more question, one more comment. Oh, this is a comment. Yes. Um, just to piggyback on what you just said, 
push some things through. Mm-hmm. Because we have such a span of older saints who've been there forever doing it one way only. Uh-huh. And sometimes it can get a little frustrating for us young leaders and not want to be a part of the ship that may be near sinking. When we can have ways to patch up some holes to keep the boat afloat and then add an engine to it with more octane to push it forward. Okay. Yeah, well, first of all, I like the image. It just kept rolling on there, this, this, the fixing the ship and finding the, the holes. I, th I think you're doing the right thing. The one thing I'd encourage you to do is, and you said it this way, some of the senior saints, you use that language. What, what I'd encourage you to do is respect and love those who probably operate differently, but were it not for them, there would be no organization. And so learning how to, how to build relationships with them, I'd encourage you to reach out to some of those senior, those senior leaders and say, can we have lunch? If nothing else, well, if you can build relationships with them, when they see you leading for change, they'll trust you more. So hang out with those younger leaders, but together as younger leaders, reach out to some of those older folks. Not, not to convince them of anything, but to learn from them. And to honor them, uh, honor them over a meal. And I, I think sometimes it's really easy to get frustrated with the generation whose names we don't know. And I mean that both ways. Young folks getting frustrated with older folks and older folks getting frustrated with younger folks. It's much harder to get frustrated when you're friends. So we have to cross the generational lines and build those relationships. All right. Thank you for letting me be with you. Let me pray for you. And I think we have a break. I'm not sure. I'm looking around. Oh. Oh, well, you're kind. Thank you. Thank you. All right, let me, let me pray. God, God, do help us to be the men and women you want us to be. For the sake of all of our generations, for those of us who have plotted along and want to leave a strong legacy, for those that that want to press forward immediately and want to do it well and don't want to wait. God, help us to figure out how to do this together. Give us leaders, God, who pray first, who love your word and work at proclaiming your word, who patiently persist. And God, for any hurting pastor that is in this room or represented by a mission strategist in this room, God, give those hurting pastors people who will walk beside them. Tear down any hardened walls that, that get in the way of those pastors reaching out to others. And God, I pray as a result of our time together today, tomorrow, that some pastor represented here, we'll have more hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.